Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I think we've all heard the phrase, can't see the forest for the trees. It's a simple statement of the epitome of ironic situations. This idiom simply means that someone is so focused on specific details, or I'd expand it and say a specific agenda, that they're incapable of widening their view and seeing the big picture that's right in front of them. At a point in our history, that phrase would have pointed out the skewed worldview of an individual, but today, that simple phrase seems to describe a way of life for the vast majority. In our postmodern world, everyone seems to be focused on what they believe to be their truth, striving to make their beliefs, their wants, their desires, their agenda king of the mountain, while totally ignoring others, the feasibility of their view, or reality entirely. We find this worldview goes hand in hand with confirmation bias, where all we allow into our world is information that confirms what we believe to be true. And another cognitive bias called the Batter-Meinhof phenomenon, also known as the frequency illusion, where we seem to see what's in the front of our mind just everywhere we turn, further confirming our belief that we're right, regardless of any and all evidence to the contrary. And this is found in every area of life. On today's episode, all for the sake of the Almighty Agenda, first we're going to scientifically ignore the truth found in the biblical account of our past, then we're going to help the Bible say what it actually meant to say. In a programming note, for the next few episodes of the Logical Christian Podcast, there will be no goal update. However, rest assured, they will be back, and they will not be good, but they will get better. So securely strap on your blinders. And get that sanctified Sharpie in your favorite Bible. We've got a lot of marking up to do. Despite all the evidence, ignoring all the haters, living my truth, here we go. So in previous segments or episodes, or episodes that contain segments, I've spoken about a few things, fairly often in fact. First, if you ever hear or use the term, the science is settled, you've left science. This is spouted by every primarily leftist news media outlet out there. It's said or typed by every keyboard warrior in the ether. And way, way too many men and women, you know, all the possible gender combinations available to humans, who have impressive degrees and various random letters after their names make this claim about various subjects. Science, by definition, can never be settled. I say that with one caveat. If God says it, well, that settles it. That goes with, well, literally everything. Science fitting nicely into that everything category. Second, every time science makes a new discovery of some sort, it quite literally destroys their humanist theories and hypotheses and supports and bolsters the biblical historical account of this world. And this is for every single area of science, discovery, exploration, etc. Just Every single time, you'd almost think that they'd start to piece things together. But no, 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 they, they continue to be willingly ignorant because the implications are too grave. They're too terrifying to fathom. So they continue their manic pursuit to prove godless humanism correct 
and biblical Christianity wrong. Case in point, and hold on to your butts, found on NewScientist.com headline, Sea level may have been higher than it is now just 6,000 years ago. Yeah, I'm, I mean, right? I mean, you know what I'm thinking, right? Yes, I'd say they're approximately correct. The sea levels may have been a touch higher than they are today, only 6,000 years ago. In fact, they state in the article, quote, the oceans may have been higher than they are now between 4,000 and 8,000 years ago. So they just use that midpoint of that range for their headline. And I'd say, yeah, uh, sure, close, close enough. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and this is where we need to leave NewScientist.com because they want you to pay for the rest of that article. And I think you know me well enough to know that I'll waste way more of my time, remember time is money, searching for this article or the study just to find it for free. And after probably a good hour or so of searching, I finally duck-duck-goed the right combination of search terms and found the study. (laughs) Take that, NewScientist.com. So, this entire study is, of course, from two worldviews that I adamantly disagree with. Evolution and global warming. Or, more accurately, I have no problem with the concept of global warming or even with the concept of climate change. I have a problem with the ridiculous hypothesis of man-caused global warming, as well as the hypothesis that the current temperature we're at right now is the correct or even the best temperature for this planet. I mean, to believe that or imply that is literal scientific insanity. Yes, literal. So, this study focuses primarily on the so-called Holocene era, which is the time period of our planet from 11,700 years ago to today. Now, at my most liberal, half asleep as I'm waking up from surgery point, I could give you enough ground to say that the Holocene era is the full extent of our created history. More accurately, I happen to hold to the approximately 6,000-year history of the planet as I choose to believe the Bible. But here we are. As I tend to do, I've once again digressed slightly. So in the abstract of this study, they make it clear that they're looking at the period before versus after the early industrial era, which they mark at 1850 AD, but they can't use AD as that implies the Christian Jesus, so they use 1850 CE, the common era, but they still use the same number, 1850, which still implies the Christian Jesus as There's quite literally no other reason for or occasion of a split in how we counted years, but I guess it makes them feel better. Of course, they're looking at that point in our history as they consider that to be an inflection point where man started to just pollute the air and destroy everything. It's proven that there have been other periods in our past, regardless of worldview, when the atmosphere has had much greater levels of CO2, but once again, let's go with their theory. Seems like they're piling up a lot of theories at this point, doesn't it? Anyway, 
The study is basically looking at global mean sea level, or GMSL, as an indicator of how ice sheets and glaciers react to global temperatures. The prevailing theory until this study is that at no other point in the Holocene era were the sea levels greater than they were or are since the early industrial era, even though the global temperature may have exceeded the global temperature since the early industrial era. Now, Full disclosure, the study has not been peer-reviewed. But if you listen to my segment on how peer-reviewing is nothing but a joke, and this really doesn't matter now, does it? So in layman's terms, the past theory has stated that even though it might have been warmer pre-1850 than it is post-1850, the global sea level was thought to be lower pre-1850 than it is post-1850. Well, you can just wipe all of that information straight out of your brain. Just do a factory reset format brain colon if you're a computer guy, because this study now says that it appears that the GMSL may have been higher, up to one and a half meters, which could be three inches or 4,800 miles. There's really no way to know, silly metric system, somewhere between 4,000 and 8,000 years ago. In fact, they give a probability of 79% that it was higher, as well as a 66% chance that the Antarctic ice sheet was likely smaller than present in the last 6,000 years. And once again, I'd absolutely agree with both of these, although I do believe that with a little more study, using all available information, they'd find that the sea level was likely just a touch more than 1.5 meters higher than today. Although, truth be told, there's no way for us to know how much. I mean, we have no idea if the pre-Diluvian or the, the pre-global flood world had mountains or just how high the hills were or anything like that. But we know, per the historical record, that's not poetry and it's not a parable and it's not an allegory and it's not a myth, that the high hills were all covered. So, why do they care enough to perform yet another study? Well, to prove that man is destroying the planet, even though there's literally no evidence or data that says that. So one of the conclusions they drew is that the retreat, the melting of the Antarctic ice sheet, lags elevated global temperatures by about 250 years. And of course, that means that uh, as we head into our era of global boiling, or whatever that United Nations head clown said, we're going to just melt all the ice eventually apparently. Uh, per their model, they show that with a 90% probability, that's, that's pretty high confidence, the GMSL, the sea level, will rise over the next 125 years, the fastest that we've seen in the last 5,000 years. And by 2080, the sea level will, quote, more likely than not, and no probability given there, be the highest that you or I have ever seen in the last 115,000 years. Now, how many electric vehicles are you planning on purchasing at this point, you know, to save the planet? As you scroll through the study, you'll find a number of footnotes and pretty graphs and formulas and references, but what you won't find is any sort of realization, an, an aha moment, a point where they look at these dates and say... Wasn't there a high water event story around the same time period somewhere? Ah, pretty sure I heard of something somewhere. No, I'm not going to go any farther into this study as there's really not any point. I mean, 
look, they did a lot of scientific stuff. They did a lot of investigation, a lot of theorizing, calculations and the like. But they once again refused to look at all the data and all the theories to try to arrive at their conclusion. And without doing that, by simply discounting an entire theory of the history of the planet, you cannot do science correctly. And the cluelessness just abounds. A gentleman on LinkedIn, a self-described philosopher and lawyer, name isn't really important here, stated that he's been studying climate history for 40 years, and he just shakes his head at these climate scare headlines. He says that any Florida geologist can tell you that as recently as 5,000 years ago, the Florida Keys were underwater. And yes, yeah, they absolutely were. I agree. So as I was searching around on this topic and the others, I, I found article after article about study after study that talks about sea levels and has the magical number of 6,000 years ago, give or take. One from October 2014 found on TheGuardian.com headline, Sea Level Rise Over Past Century Unmatched in 6,000 Years, says study. Okay, well, we could argue that claim, but again, we see that same time period. Why that time period specifically? From May of 2017, found on CO2Coalition.org, headline, 10 new papers, sea levels 1 to 6 meters higher, 4,000 to 6,000 years ago. Well, clearly these studies are finding something in that 4,000 to 8,000 year range that maybe should be investigated further. Uh, but no, they must stick with their theories. Professor Richard Lewinton, a geneticist, a leader in evolutionary biology, and a Marxist by his own admission, who lived from 1929 until just recently in 2021, said the following, quote, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but, on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The eminent Kant scholar, Louis Beck, used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. Yeah, see, they, they can't allow a divine foot in the door. Uh, not because they can't see it, but because everything they've built has been constructed on the hope that this God doesn't exist. Going a little farther down this road that we're on, from April 2021, found on news.harvard.edu, headline, Earth may have been a water world three billion years ago. Okay, well, 
for first of all, no, there was no three billion years ago, but, but let's just say a long time ago, or maybe, maybe in the beginning. The article says, quote, according to a new Harvard-led study, geochemical calculations about the interior of the planet's water storage capacity suggests Earth's primordial ocean three to four billion years ago may have been one to two times larger than it is today and possibly covered the planet's entire surface. It depends on the conditions and parameters we look at in the model, such as the height and distribution of the continents. But the primordial ocean could have flooded more than 70, 80, and even 90% of the early continents, says Junji Dong, a PhD student in Earth and Planetary Sciences at the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, who led the study. In the extreme scenarios, if we have an ocean that is two times larger than the amount of water we have today, that might have completely flooded the land masses we had on the surface of the early Earth. Well, Junji, I agree. In fact, we have a historical record that says that uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth, and that the Earth was basically a water-covered ball, void of life, void of land, just water. And on day three, and after God created light on day one and gathered waters below and above the sky on day two, well, he gathered the waters into one place and poof, dry land appeared. Now, we don't know how much dry land is compared to water, but we know that it was all water, then water and land. The speculation being a lot of water and some land. Then 1,500 years later, all that water above the heavens came down, and the water that was in the interior of the planet, in those large storage areas, broke free and came up, and once again, all the land was covered, flooded with water. The researching scientists, quote, weren't looking for signs of liquid water, but its chemical equivalent, oxygen and hydrogen atoms, which bond to the interior of the planet. They compiled all the data in the scientific literature they could find on minerals that hold these signs and used the figures to calculate how much water there could be in the Earth's mantle, which makes up the bulk of the planet's interior. That number is referred to as the planet's mantle water storage capacity. It changes as the interior of the planet continues to Cool. The group calculated what that number could be today and how much could have been stored a few billion years ago to see how the number had changed. The capacity back then was significantly less. Scientists then compared those numbers to geochemical estimates of how much water is in the mantle today. Analysis found that the actual water content today is likely higher than the maximum water capacity of the mantle a few billion years ago, meaning the water today wouldn't have been able to fit in the mantle billions of years ago. This suggests the water was someplace else on the world's surface. According to the researchers' calculations, the amount of water that could have gone down into the Earth's mantle could potentially be as much as all the present-day oceans combined. Now, there are a lot of caveats in their own study, and I'd add some caveats of my own, one being that if they're doing calculations based on billions of years ago, their results will necessarily be wrong, since that time frame is uh, well, it's simply foolish. What we do know is that at one point the water covered the Earth. At another point, the Earth was mostly covered with water. At another point, the Earth was, again, completely covered with water. And then the valley sunk down and the mountains raised up and the water rolled back into the places established for it. This is when creationists generally believe that due to all of the activity, the Ice Age, the only Ice Age this planet has experienced, took place with a massive ice sheet covering a large percentage of the Earth, with a subsequent thawing and melting and shrinking of the ice sheet ever since. 
what's clearly obvious is that at no point in our history has the Earth held all the water inside the mantle. But we know that there was enough water in the mantle to flood the entire Earth, and we know that at least some either remained in the mantle or rolled back into the mantle. But even with that, those discounting the biblical account of the global flood argue that there isn't and wasn't anywhere near enough water to cover the entire planet, especially covering all of the mountains. Well, first of all, we have no idea how much land there was, and then we have no idea how high the highest land was, and finally, we don't know how much water was under the earth or above the heavens. But now, just a few days ago, found on Indy100.com via MSN.com, headline, Massive Ocean Discovered Beneath the Earth's Crust Containing More Water Than on the Surface. Now, this isn't quite how it sounds, but as the opening paragraph states, quote, it feels like there have been staggering science stories emerging every other day recently, all of which have blown our tiny little minds. Yes, again, I absolutely agree. Every discovery, every story is showing us how small and uninformed we are, and how much is out there that we don't know, and how much we know, but now we know how wrong we were with what we knew. So apparently scientists studying earthquakes were picking up shockwaves under the surface of the Earth and wanted to know why. Well, after studying the issue, they found that about 400 miles under the surface of the Earth, there's a kind of rock that's called ringwoodite. The ringwoodite is apparently like some sort of a sponge, as in it soaks up water and then traps it. In the temperature and pressure of the deep mantle, this rock can hold apparently a lot of water. In fact, quote, if the rock contained just 1% water, it would mean that there is three times more water under the surface of the earth than there is in the oceans on the surface. Now, I wonder how deep the cracks were when we're told that the fountains of the deep burst forth or split open, and I wonder where all of the water rolled off to. See, science is an amazing thing. We can learn so much from studying and hypothesizing, testing, analyzing, and repeating. The glory and wonder of this creation is, from the human perspective, limitless. Our infinite God created something that our finite minds can only grasp a fraction of a percent of, but he's given us the ability to learn and test and document and pass our work to the next guy so that he or she can continue building on the past discoveries with the next discoveries. And yet, what we don't know and have yet to investigate is virtually infinite as compared to what we do know, or at least what we think we know. But that knowledge and ability to learn is tainted and severely limited when we refuse to take the history found in the Bible into account. In these last few minutes, I gave you basically three fairly major scientific discoveries from the last 10 years or so, and each one of them aligns just fine with the general history we have in our Bibles and in fact supports the biblical accounts. But man is willingly ignorant, or as one creation scientist, Kent Hovind, puts it, dumb on purpose. The scientists refuse to see and acknowledge God, at least outwardly. Rather, they not only must keep a deity out of so-called science, but they want to keep God out in the hopes that if they don't acknowledge God, maybe he'll just disappear, go away, leave us alone. Most of us have used that exact same kind of tactic while in school, right? If I looked down at my desk, ensuring I don't meet the gaze of the teacher, then surely I won't be called on. Unfortunately, keeping God out of science works 
just about that well. It's God walking in the garden, calling out to Adam, inquiring about where he was. We can ignore God, but he knows exactly where we are and what we've done, and he's not going to ignore us. By conducting biased science, ignoring an entire plausible theory of which we have a written record, it means that there are massive areas of study that are faulty by scientific design. And it means that millions upon millions are fed the lies being peddled by these alleged scientists as they try to explain everything through their faulty knowledge and biased minds. It means that eventually we'll find ourselves in front of God being asked what we did to get into heaven. Either we accepted the sacrifice of Christ, repenting of our sinful ways and placing our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, or we simply did our best based on what we thought we should do and what we thought we should think, and that will never be right or good enough. So don't hide from God. Don't ignore the Bible either when conducting science or when you read or hear about science or scientific discoveries. Think about how the latest breakthrough discovery aligns with a biblical worldview and then praise God, the maker of heaven and earth. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing here? I mean, I have to be here, but are you lost? Do you need some help? Surely you don't realize where you are. Well, sit down, put down any hot drinks. This is actually part three of a fundamental disaster. Our review of the recent Andy Stanley, I mean, for lack of a better term, sermon series entitled The Fundamental List, which is his look, his theory, his opinion as to what the fundamentals, the essentials are in order to be a Jesus follower. I'll give you a second to let that shiver you just felt in your spine work all the way down or or up, whichever direction your spinal shivers move. Okay, for those of you that remain, you're either braver than most, crazy like me, or you feel that you need to be punished for something... So, whatever your reason, let's get this started. The sooner we start, the sooner we finish. For background, in my recent segment entitled Lying Liars Who Lie, I simply asked the question, what's the difference between an absolutely blasphemous, gender-affirming, all-whatever-accepting church reciting the Sparkle Creed and lying to their congregants, and someone like Andy Stanley purportedly using the Bible while lying to his congregants? What started as an intention, I, I swear, a good intention to just briefly review and summarize the fundamentalist sermon series that I stumbled upon, uh, turned into a jaw-dropping incredulity and a shift in strategy deciding to just review each of the sermons. (sighs) This and many other harrowing tales of woe in my upcoming book, My Life Choices and Other Poor Things. Now, I don't want to do an extensive summary for all that we've already covered before, so if you're jumping into the middle of this, let me encourage you to go back to either the Lying Liars Who Lie segment, or at least parts one and two of A Fundamental Disaster, and catch up before jumping into this one. Eh, but hey, it's up to you. I mean, I'm not going to call the podcast police either way. Do what you want. My premise in doing these reviews can be found in the book of Jude, and in the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These men defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones." Woe to them! 
These men are clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name do we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." Now, I've clearly left out some portions of the text uh, for the sake of time. Just go back and read the book of Jude, it's only one chapter, and Matthew 7 for the full text. My premise is that Andy and churches and pastors and pastrixes, which don't biblically exist, are that are just like him, they're prime examples of these bad fruit trees, and they, along with their adherents, will be those crying, Lord, Lord, because they either taught heresy or they listened to heresy without bothering to be like the Bereans and at a minimum dust off and crack open that Bible to see if what they were being told was true. Am I being harsh? Maybe. Am I being true? I sure think so. So over the last two parts, we've covered the first three points on this growing disaster. Andy calls it his fundamental list. Those points are one, Jesus is God's son and our king. Two, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. And three, Jesus defined sin as anything that harms you or others. The theory that Andy's building is that church should be good for everyone, that the good news of great joy should be for all people. All, of course, meaning everyone in all of history, which is not what all means in this context, at least. And that we should be Jesus' followers, not Christians, Jesus followers, meaning we look to the red letters only, see what Jesus said, what he did, how he acted, and and do that. We discount everything else because that everything else, it's inconvenient for a church or a pastor that's trying to shift the role of the church and the message of the Bible. He illustrates this desire with the phrase, quote, when cultural and peripheral are considered essential, Christianity eventually becomes untenable and unlivable for someone. See, he believes that all those traditional cultural and theological things that churches have been teaching for centuries may be nothing but toxic, non-essential, peripheral things that got jammed into the real faith. And if we just measure it against the words of Jesus only, only the, we'll see that he never said anything directly or specifically about that or, or that or that. And so why should we concern ourselves with those things? Like I said, for the sake of time, Go back and listen to part one and two. I can't do it justice with a relatively brief summary here. But with that, let's endeavor to get through messages four and five today. No, I'm not happy about it either. Yes, it needs to be done. So for message number four, I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that Andy isn't preaching this one. (laughs) It's apparently one of the other campus ministers, an Andy Acolyte or protege or a Sith apprentice, I don't know, who goes by the name Joel Thomas. The bad news is that this is still Andy's sermon series, so the the premise, the points, and the heresy is still the same. 
Now, Joel, for just a quick background, was apparently North Point Church's first intern, and then he ran their Alpharetta campus as campus pastor, then took the lead pastor position at Mission Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, which is apparently where he's giving his little talk from. Staying true to form, we need a hook, not the scriptures. Now, we need something fun and exciting. We start with a question, quote, why doesn't God do something about blank? Now, as we find many standard evangelies these days, they start with the question, then go overboard with examples to try to illustrate their point as if they were talking with a small child. They really talk down to their congregants, or or maybe not. Maybe this kind of spoon-fed pablum is all most of them can absorb. I don't know. But I guess this is all they can handle, because although he calls them an above-average audience, he seems to really break this down to a preschool level. When he finally finds his way out of the endless illustrations maze, we do a bit of a recap, 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 recap. Then he jumps into the idea that if we know there are things that aren't right, then we must have an idea of what's ideal in order to compare everything else to. So we look at God, the God of the Old Testament, and we look at Jesus, and it looks like they're at odds. And then we find that people say they like that New Testament Jesus, but they don't really like the Old Testament God. And I agree, based on the way a lot of biblical teaching takes place, people absolutely think of God, Jesus, and the Bible this way. This was one of the unstated points that Andy has made previously with the resolution, because unless you want to go full-blown heresy, you need to affirm the Trinity, you know, so Jesus is God, with the resolution being that if Jesus is God's earthly representative, if Jesus came to show us what and who God is like, then we only need to look to Jesus. We don't really need to be too concerned with the Old Testament. Just look at the Gospels and Jesus, full stop. Now, he didn't say it in those words, but he absolutely said it. To set up the logistics, which I haven't done before, but it's pertinent here, Joel follows suit with Andy's teaching style with a moderately large screen TV on stage next to him. Just has a black background. All the text is in either white or yellow lettering. I can't figure out the rhyme or reason as to why. Maybe the yellow is where you fill it in on a on a study guide they give you, I, I'm not really sure. It's a very basic but effective method without it being too distracting. Not bad. Now, Joel apparently fashions himself to be an illustrator or a comic or an artist. I'm not really sure. He's got the TV, but he's also constantly turning back to a large blackboard of some sort. It's not chalk. I don't know if it's a dry erase. I'm really not sure what this thing is, but it's a big blackboard. And he has a white and a yellow, I'll call them markers because I'm not sure what they are. And he writes additional points and draws little pictures and things like that and generally distracts the congregation and his own train of thought because he's trying to draw something. Anyway, Joel starts by using the biblical account of the flood to illustrate his point. And he starts with the qualification that, quote, Some of you don't believe that happened, but the story of the flood is a story that represents God in the Old Testament. And it actually, what it represents in the Old Testament, it represents God's judgment. And his judgment seems harsh. I mean, is there really only one righteous person in the world? I mean, is Noah the only guy? Now, he poses the hypothetical questions of, did God really need to flood the world and kill everyone and everything? And why would a God, a good God, do that? Well, he then gives a quick context of where we are in Genesis. Chapter 1 is more poetic, telling of creation. Chapter 2 is more detailed. 
Except that's not right. Chapter 1 is a historical narrative. It has absolutely no markers of poetry in any way when looking at the original language. The reason they claim that it, it must be poetry is because they want to fit evolution into the creation account. So they can't have you taking the writing literally. They just want you to look at it figuratively. Now, he comes to the account of Cain and Abel, and he pretty much does what everyone else does. He shows how God favors Abel because of his sacrifice and not Cain because of his sacrifice, and then goes off on a small tangent of how sacrificing is innate in us as humans because Cain and Abel sacrifice, but apparently for no reason. They just, I guess, knew that they should. So I got to ask, is that true? Well, I mean, I, I don't know, but not really. God, likely Jesus as a Christophany, sacrificed at least one animal directly after the first sin to make Adam and Eve clothes of skins to replace the cobbled together leaves they tried to cover themselves in. After that, we don't know if God set up a system of sacrifices, if Adam set up a sacrificial system. We don't know if Adam has made sacrifices or even if Cain or Abel had made previous sacrifices. But I have a hard time believing that Cain and Abel both thought up the idea at the same time that, uh, hey, we should be giving something to God. That doesn't really make any sense. And as the illustrious Judge Judy says, if it doesn't make sense, it's probably not true. Then Joel likens you and I uh, and our innate desire to sacrifice, you know, sacrifice our time and our treasure and our talents to be just like Cain and Abel, right? Just like the Israelites and all their sacrifices. I mean, sometimes I need to sacrifice an entire weekend for a church thing. <laughs> How crazy is that, right? But Joel, as most of uh, this kind of quasi-pastor does, he makes the implication that right sacrifices will bring favor. Then he shoots off in a different direction. Cain was downcast, which is apparently how we feel when we're judged. We're embarrassed when someone calls us out. And when that happens, we respond to the shame that we're feeling from being called out in anger. And I guess bash your brother in the head with a rock. <laughs> he didn't say that exactly. And this is what Cain is doing, right? He's embarrassed. He, he feels bad, so he's angry, says Joel. See, God came to Cain and asked why his face was downcast. And Joel says that Cain is angry and downcast because he's being judged. Joel says, quote, I mean, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, if you make the right sacrifices, and we know this, things go typically go fairly well, as well as they can go in a broken and difficult world. But things go typically well. But if not, if you don't make the right sacrifices, if you don't live in the right way, like you invite the consequences to your doorstep. Oh, I bet the Apostle Paul, who was beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead, imprisoned, and eventually was likely beheaded, would have liked to know the secret. Or Peter, who was crucified upside down, or maybe churches and Christians in China or Muslim-controlled nations today. If they just sacrifice rightly, things will typically, generally, go well for them. Uh, these points are easy to make when you wear the blinders of the first world. Look around. Regardless of what you do or say or believe, for most people in the United States, things are going typically generally well for them. I guess they're sacrificing rightly. <laughs> Good for them. This, as I stated in part two, is nothing but the burden of legalism being placed on you. If your life is hard, you better get living and sacrificing right. Andy even stated that he used to be a legalist until Jesus changed his heart. But he's still a legalist, just a legalist of his own invention and acceptance. And that's fine. That's, that's just fine. 
Back to our Bible story, as Andy makes a point of calling them, it's not just God that's judging him, it's also Abel's sacrifice that's judging him, because Abel was the representation of the ideal. So apparently Cain killing Abel was God's fault. Joel doesn't say that, but wouldn't that be an implication we can draw? What if God just accepted both sacrifices? I mean, you know, Cain did his best. Abel would be alive today, right? But but God judged the sacrifice that Cain gave as not being acceptable, and now Abel's dead. I hope we're all happy. Now, at about the halfway point, Joel has stated four times that maybe you're a Christian or maybe you're not. And at this point, he says it again and says that it really doesn't matter if you believe this is a real story or not. He believes it because Jesus affirmed it, but you do what you want. It's a it's a good life tale. See, when we're set up against the ideal, like the ideal spouse or parent or worker, and we don't measure up, we feel judged. And now there are only two ways to deal with this judgment. One, be inspired and try to attain the ideal, or two, we can do what Cain did and try to get the ideal out of our life. And he carries on with this judging thing that makes us feel bad and, once again, gives us a number of illustrations, just hypothetical scenarios where we're being judged and what we can or should do about it. You know, like little children. Then he highlights the questioning and the punishment of Cain by God and the fact that God didn't kill Cain for what he did. Rather, he just punished him, which to Joel is apparently equivalent to Cain getting away with murder. Now, he states that it was because of grace that Cain wasn't killed, which, I don't know, that may or may not be true. You could say that. I would say mercy. But then he focuses on the mark placed on Cain. He reasoned that it was to save the family of Abel, which would be Adam and Eve and maybe some other siblings, potentially, as Cain took a wife, which would have been a sister, right? And he's saving them, the family of Abel, from enacting some sort of justice on Cain. He reasons that we humans are not designed to enact justice. Now, we do it through judges and juries, but we aren't made to do this, and we aren't good at it. Quote, it's because we weren't designed for that. You weren't designed to be a just and a final judge of anything, and we're not good at it anyway, right? How many times have you prejudged or misjudged somebody or something unjustly? Implications of this? Judge not. It's not your place to judge. You can't do it. You're not good at it, and you screw it up. So stop judging people. It's not your job. Of course, that's not what the Bible tells us. That verse that's always pointed to, judge not lest ye be judged, that's taken wildly out of context all the time and used a lot by those who want to just live their lives however they want to live it and just leave them alone about it. And the Christian world likes to use that verse to absolve themselves of any responsibility to preach the gospel or to affirm whatever they feel they want to affirm regardless of what the Bible says. Well, Joel then jumps into Abel's kids, which we don't have any indication that he had before he was murdered. He says that Cain swears 77 times revenge for anyone that touches his grandkids, including against Abel's grandkids, which we have no way of knowing if those even existed. But that's completely wrong. That's not what the Bible says, Joel. And then he jumps to Tubal Cain, a descendant of Cain, and says that he created weapons of war. But, but Joel, the Bible only says that he was a worker of brass and iron. Now, maybe he created weapons, maybe not. We have no way of knowing. And Joel then concludes that the entire lineage of Cain is out of control and destructive. But all we know is that Cain fathered Enoch, who fathered Irad, who fathered 
Mahujael, who fathered Methushael, who fathered Lamech, who fathered Jabal, the father of all who dwell in tents and have livestock, and Jubal, father of all who play the lyre and pipe, and Tubal-Cain, forger of bronze and iron, and sister Nema. Lamech apparently killed a young man for striking and wounding him, and that's literally all we know. And then at some point, Cain's entire line was erased from the earth and the flood, so I'm not sure where this guy is getting this. Finally, he mentions the flood and judgment, states that the first few chapters of the Bible are brilliant, which I'd agree, and then he jumps to the topic of his message, which he's about to be done with, we're coming towards the end, the final judgment. But he starts going off the rails about how pastors will use the Bible stories to scare people, and that Jesus promised judgment and the separation of heaven and hell, but it's not clear as to exactly when and how, and therefore it's non-essential, and we don't need to be fixated on it. So back to the fundamentalist, number four, quote, Jesus promised justice in the end, and invites us to trust him in the meantime. Apparently, Jesus is inviting us to trust him how to live so that things can go well and favorably for us. Quote, And the truth is, is, is when we trust Jesus and we choose to live our lives one way, we actually bring the favor of heaven down into our lives. And, and you know this. You bring good things when you follow the way of Jesus. It, it, it. Things go well for you, and they go well for people around you. But we also have done this. A lot of us have brought hell up into our lives by making to the choices we've had and by no other fault of anybody but ourselves. And in some cases, you've experienced the fault of other people's decisions. But many of us have experienced bringing hellish things and circumstances up into our own lives and into our relationships because the way we've lived. And you know this, and you've seen it. Some of you have experienced it. (sighs) Joel, I don't know this. Again, shall we ask the apostles? Shall we ask the early martyrs? Shall we ask the persecuted Christians around the world? Did they make choices that brought hell up into their lives? If only they had made better choices to bring heaven and favor down. Bunch of silly-headed apostles, martyrs, and persecuted Christians. What's sad is that he believes this, at least I think, and I guarantee that if they cut to the congregation, you'd have note-takers, people paying close attention, and a lot of nods and amens of agreement. He's lying. This isn't in the Bible anywhere, which is why he uses the Bible story to illustrate his point rather than use the scriptures to prove his point. Remember, Andy said that a lot of times pastors use Bible verses, though. We don't want to be those type of people. We're actually not promised favor at all. Jesus promised us trouble in this life. We were promised that the world would hate us because they hate Jesus. That doesn't sound very favorable. Again, the the fact that those of us that live in the United States have a very easy Christian life as compared to nearly everywhere else in the world, that creates this stupid theology. You want to know what's brought up out of hell? It's this foolish theory that our actions dictate if God grants you favor or goes all hands off and the devil, you know, the ruler of hell, note the sarcasm please, enacts helly things on us. This is how you destroy a person's faith. This is how you get people to walk away from the church. You lie to them and tell them that if life is hard, it's your fault. This is evil. This not only creates a heavily legalistic religion, it removes faith. It removes God's sovereignty. It removes God's mercy. It places all things squarely on our shoulders. So you better not screw it up. 
Now, he goes on. If we trust Jesus to be the final judge, we're choosing to follow the way he taught us to live, which includes don't return evil for evil, turn the other cheek, be generous, go the extra mile, love your enemies, pray for persecutors, put others first, and live for later. And if we do these things, quote, there is eternal ideal waiting for us one day. He quotes 2 Corinthians 5.10, quote, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. And so to his credit, Joel says that for the saved, we'll be judged based on Christ, which is correct. That's true. He also says that we'll still give an account for of our uh, sacrifice and prioritization and how we've chosen to follow and trust Jesus. I also believe that to be true, although some people dispute this. I believe that the saved upon the final judgment will be given crowns based on their lives on earth, maybe other things as well, but we'll cast all those crowns at the feet of Jesus, whether we have many or few, as soon as we see him, as no matter what we did on earth, Jesus did all we couldn't do, which is why we could be saved in the first place. Then he tells a story of a man he brought into a circle of pastors, and this man betrayed the confidence of another pastor, and he said that for weeks he was mad. The guy he brought into the group betrayed him. How dare he? And then after weeks of anger, he remembered, oh, well, this guy is going to give an account one day. So will he. So it's not his role to judge this person, because he's not a just judge, and he doesn't deliver justice rightly. Quote, We will not be rewarded for how well we judge other people, but we've gotten good at it as Christians, haven't we? Only the one who made the ultimate sacrifice has earned that right. You see, when God's final king came into the world and he decided to come and deliver his justice, which is extraordinary, he came into the world and he said he came to serve and he came into the world. He said, I'm a shepherd and I'm the good shepherd. And instead of exacting his justice, he delayed it. He chose to delay his justice and he delayed his justice so that everyone who hadn't lived properly, who hadn't made the right sacrifices, who hadn't made the right decisions, who hadn't lived perfectly, who hadn't experienced the things of heaven that could go well for them and favorably for them in this life that have pulled hell up into their lives, those people, those people would have the opportunity to turn to him and receive his sacrifice. And he called himself the good shepherd who came to lay his life down for his sheep. And in doing so, he earned the right to be trusted. Whew. Okay, well, I'm sorry. I know that I'm not supposed to judge. But Joel is not good at this. Uh, Let's be clear. Jesus didn't earn anything. He certainly didn't earn the right to be trusted. He's God. He is to be trusted because he is truth. And that's pretty much that. See, as I've stated, he's turned the gospel into a works righteous system. You do these things, you'll have a good life. If you don't, well, you will bring hell into your life. You do this. You are the captain of your ship. You are the sovereign. Further, stop judging. Jesus will judge eventually. Don't worry about it. You just don't judge people. Only worry about the words of Jesus. Ignore the rest of the Bible. You worry about you. You let God worry about the rest. Stop being so judgmental against other people and people groups. This is what he's saying. This narrative that this church is building is expertly crafted. Gotta say, truth be told, I've listened to most of these messages at least twice, and the second time through, I'm picking out more than I did the first time. They have twisted and wound their agenda like expert craftsmen into these messages. A master's class in manipulation and psychological subliminal persuasion. Notice that there was no actual gospel message. 
because he can't put one here. It won't work with what he's trying to pass off as truth. He doesn't like to speak of sin either. He speaks of oopsies and screw-ups and mistakes and bad decisions, those that pull hell up into their lives. This is yet another mess. This doesn't benefit anyone anything. It's, it's very dangerous, as it's impossible to fulfill on our own. Jesus is the one that lived life perfectly. God is the one that is sovereign. Our righteousness will never be earned by what we do. It was given to us by Jesus. But again, the epitome of irony is that they focus so heavily on Jesus. But as they do with the Bible, Jesus is only a prop, a means to an end. I know I keep saying this, but this is unbelievably dangerous and damnable teaching. But while we're going, let's get to that message number five, shall we? I know, I know. Pause it here if you need to. Take a break. Take a few days. Let your brain clear. Read your Bible. Or jump on in with me, figuratively smack your head with a shovel, and let's keep going. Message number five in the fundamental list starts with one of my major pet peeves. Now, we're back to good old Andy on this one. Joel has been put back in the closet for a little while. Don't worry. It's not the last time we'll see him. So Andy uses one of his favorite emotional manipulation tools, one that a lot of people and sadly a lot of modern day seemingly woke preachers use. He starts by saying, quote, so today I would like to begin with a question that if you are a Christian, you may have been afraid to ask because it's like, I don't, can we ask questions like that? See, he's trying to set himself up as your hero. He's not one of those stuffy systematic theology guys. He's just like you, man. He's an everyday Joe. He's in the trenches trying to get the man's boot off your neck. He continues, quote, so I'm just going to say maybe what you were thinking. But it's also a question that you may have asked in the past, and it's why you're not a Christian anymore, as he chuckles, because apparently that's funny, or it's why you lost faith, right? See what he's doing here? This is old thing. This is the mean, judgmental, wrath-fueled Christianity, and we need to move past that. Going on, quote, It's a question you had the courage to ask, and in asking the question, it became an off-ramp to faith, or maybe undermined your faith, and so here's the question. Why can't the Christian God just forgive and forget? I mean, can we ask that, right? It's like, why did somebody have to die for somebody else's sins? Okay, now, that's a valid question. I think most Christians have asked that question at some point, typically prior to becoming a Christian or very early on being a Christian. The answer is usually fairly easily given. The sacrificial system is what God set up for forgiveness of sins. Now, we can go deeper into the holiness of God, the uh, impurity of sin, the, the perfect justice of a perfectly just God, etc., etc. But I don't think I've ever heard of anyone losing their faith because of that question. And I don't think there are more than a few pulpit pounders that would have excoriated someone for asking a basic valid question. What Andy is doing is relating to his audience. As we've all basically asked the question, he makes us feel as if we did something massively against the theological patriarchy that will get us in trouble, and he's the champion who will rescue us from the mean, hateful, suit-wearing, stiff, up-behind-the-ornate, intimidating pulpit. Now, in reality, Andy has done or asked nothing profound, and frankly, I'm a little bit frightened about where he's going to go with this. He's very good at being very convincing with his very bad interpretations of very basic biblical topics. 
Now, he goes into the basic trope of, we don't have to die to forgive people. And since he's God, why does he require death and blood? Isn't that kind of overkill? Why the brutality and barbarism? If you've been a Christian for very long, you've heard these arguments and questions or maybe made and asked them yourself. He then gives what he calls the Sunday school answer, the textbook answer, making it clear that he means to say we learned it early on, not that it's simplistic or wrong. Basically, we sin, which earns us punishment. Jesus took that punishment for us. But why can't God just do what he wants to do? Well, he then goes into a hypothetical series of questions that the unbeliever would ask, which he's frighteningly good at asking unbelievers questions. Too good at, to be honest. If God is God, why did he make a standard so high that he couldn't reach it? Then hold us accountable, which then required him to kill his own son to reconcile us to him. Did God tie his own hands with his own rules and system? Was or is God powerless to change things? Regardless, he makes the point that Jesus dying for sin is fundamental and essential, but it can also be an obstacle. Okay, I mean, maybe. Yeah, I I can see that. I kind of see what he's saying, but knowing Andy, he's got some point he's going to try to make that's not going to be good. I don't trust him. I'm not sure if I've made that clear or not. So Andy goes into recap, 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 making sure you understand that these new ideas get woven into the faith and they're probably toxic and everyone thinks they're right and if you dare question them, you're out and you might have left the church or the faith because people were too mean or too judgmental and you don't think Jesus would do that on and on and on. You've heard it all before. Then he adds to his fundamentalist real early on in this one, number five, quote, Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you to God. Okay, I agree. Can we go home now? But no, no, we can't. He has more wisdom to impart on us or to us or confuse us with or deconstruct our faith with. So he jumps into 1 Corinthians, quoting Paul, but then he focuses on what he claims to be an early creed that Paul apparently quoted, making a huge point that at that time, the Gospels hadn't been written. The churches didn't have anything written down to read, and most of them couldn't read anyway, so they made these creeds and built theology around that. And in fact, This creed is one of the reasons that we, you and I, and Andy, believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I'd like to argue with him that no, it's not, but he keeps telling me that he's a nerd and he's a geek. Basically, he's calling to his authority, and he's done that multiple times so far, and we're only a third of the way into this thing. It's a technique of denigrating himself to get a chuckle while at the same time raising himself above us because he knows that his audience is not geeking out on theology. They're simply smiling and nodding at whatever he tells them week after week. Now, I'm not going to investigate if this creed was in fact a creed or if it was early or whatever. What I would dispute is that they had nothing to read. They literally had the Old Testament, very similar to what we have today. In fact, there was a 400-year gap between Malachi and the New Testament or the birth of Jesus. And they had the scrolls, the Old Testament, during that entire period of time. And Jesus, post-resurrection, walking with the unnamed disciples on the seven-mile trek to Emmaus, told them all about himself using the scriptures, or again, as we know it, the Old Testament. But his counter-argument is that the literacy rate in the first century was around 15%, so they needed to memorize these easy creeds because they couldn't read, I guess, the materials that didn't exist in the first place. Remember, there was nothing to read, according to Andy. There's a lot of disagreement about literacy rates in the first century. We know that the Jewish culture had kids learning their alphabet at only a few years old and reading and memorizing Torah in the single digits. As for the Roman Empire, we can't count the slaves in the literacy rates as that would be a forced anomaly as compared to the norm, but some studies suggest the correct literacy rate would have been around maybe 30%. 
Regardless, the apostles were writing letters to someone and they were being read to everyone. Groups of religious leaders were studying, searching, and teaching the scriptures all over the ancient world. So, although I agree that creeds are valuable in the fact that they are succinct statements typically written in a way to promote memorization, I don't think I'd look to this one creed as the thing that did the heavy lifting for all of Christianity. And what is this creed in question that I keep referencing? Quote, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Now, let me praise Andy for a moment, and I'm actually being serious, okay? He made a quick but important point. Jesus was dead. The other theories, and he specifically referenced the swoon theory, are bogus. Jesus died. He also made the point that Jesus appeared to Peter and the 12, and he goes on in the chapter in the 500, most of who were still alive, James and the apostles, and that proves that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and it could be verified that he was seen, talked to, and interacted with, etc., etc. Now, back to the point that they had nothing to read. Andy, what are the scriptures that Paul references when he says, according to the scriptures, in your creed? Okay. Back to his main question. Why couldn't Jesus just announce forgiveness for everyone? You know, amnesty for everybody. He cites the paralytic that was lowered through the roof, and Jesus just simply told him, your sins are forgiven. And he says that the kid doesn't even ask for forgiveness or confess any sins. Jesus just did it. But of course, in context, it was by faith. In fact, the scriptures specifically say that Jesus saw their faith, then pronounced that his sins were forgiven. And this man or these men may have been devout Jews, keeping the laws, the customs, the sacrificial system. He may have been very repentant. Regardless, Jesus, although he could if he wanted, didn't just walk around like Orca Winfrey. Your sins are forgiven and your sins are forgiven. Everyone's sins are forgiven. No, he forgave sins based on faith. Then he gives this example, quote, Then there's that little get-together during lunch, and Jesus with some Pharisees and his friends, and a woman slips in, and she's got a bad reputation, and Jesus just interrupts and points to her and says, Woman, your sins are forgiven. She didn't even ask. She didn't confess. She doesn't even say she knows who he is. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, well, I think what he's referring to is the account in Luke 7 when Jesus was eating at Simon's, a Pharisee's house, and a woman of the city, a sinner, or more accurately, a prostitute, per the biblical account, heard that Jesus was there and brought a jar of ointment. Weeping, she wet his feet with her tears, wiped his feet with her hair, kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment she brought. Simon was taken aback, as she was not a woman that should be touching Jesus if he was truly who he said he was. And Jesus uses a hypothetical question about two men owing different amounts to a lender, both forgiven, who was more grateful, which of course would be the man that had the larger debt. Jesus then turns back to the woman and says, quote, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Again, Andy, it kind of glosses over the story, you know, to make a point. And again, saved by faith, not by a random act of Jesus, by faith. Well, then Andy's final example, Jesus from the cross asking his father to forgive them, they know not what they do. Now, this can be taken a few ways as a general them that applies to the Jewish and Roman people and humanity in general, extend forgiveness and grace to humanity based on their ignorance. And this could be a forgiveness of this particular heinous crime against Jesus for those ignorant to what they were doing. What this isn't is salvation for all those involved. Whatever this is, it's not forgiveness in the same way as the paralytic or the prostitute. We know that the Pharisees were in the crowd. We know that most of them had hardened their heart toward Jesus and died in their sins. So whatever Jesus meant, these three stories are not equivalent. But Andy says that Jesus forgave people randomly at least three times that we know of, so that means he probably did it 300 times. Well, that's a leap of logic, another technique. Inflate the number to make your point more believable. So the question, quote, why did Jesus have to die? So first he makes a couple points. Quote, something can be true whether we fully understand it or not. Boom, totally agree with that. I'm curious why Andy doesn't apply that logic to the Old Testament, or specifically the creation account versus the theory of evolution. I digress, but he says, if that's where you are and that's all you need, that's cool, no problem. I'd say that if that's where you start, that's fine, but you should be growing and studying to gain understanding and wisdom. Don't just stay in a position of milk. Go for meat, people. His second point is, quote, if someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, I go with whatever that person says. Okay, sure, I think that's a valid point, but again, he goes somewhere curious. If Jesus and the first century teachers of the gospel tell him that his sin separates him from God, well, because Jesus said it, he can accept it. But you're told that in Genesis. We already know this. It may be a little picky on my part, but knowing Andy, he's again removing the Old Testament wherever he can because eh, we really don't require it. And he says that if Jesus says that there's a penalty for sin and that he needed to die to offer forgiveness, okay, he'll accept it because Jesus said it. And then we get into the real thing, the, quote, more fundamental, intellectually honest explanation. God and we value justice. We value justice because we're made in the image of God, but our view of justice is flawed and damaged and self-centered. I guess Joel didn't do a good enough job last week. Andy had to come behind him and remake the point that Joel tried to make the entire last message. Stop being so judgy. Just let God deal with it later. Now, I'd agree. Our human sense of justice, because of the fall, is skewed. It is flawed, so we can get it wrong. He states that we'd like to have justice for others, but not for ourselves. And once again, I would agree with him on that. Then he says, quote, you get far more wound up about other people's sins than your own. You yelling at the TV Democrats and the corrupt Republicans. He then claims that we can't even remember a time when we got that wound up about our own sin. Well, maybe, maybe not. Then his point, quote, our inability to grasp God's righteousness causes us to overestimate our righteousness. Okay, well, I think I could agree with that. And this causes us to underestimate the severity of our sin. And again, I, I agree with that. But then he goes into a story about when his three-year-old daughter practiced writing her letters with a rock on the hood of his car and how he accommodated his response 
to the capacity of his child. So he didn't punish her. He asked her to never do it again. And he said that all through the Bible, God accommodates to your capacity. And I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure if I understand what his story has to do with the necessity of Jesus dying to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. And I have no idea what he means that God accommodates to my capacity. (sighs) We jump to the book of Romans. Quote, So the Apostle Paul writes this letter, and he explains why God had to invite his son to die for your sins. Okay, (laughs) chapter and verse on that one invites Jesus to do that? I mean, that's not right. But let's see what Paul wrote, and and he warns us. This is a little bit theological, but it's so powerful, and I'm kind of thinking that maybe a little more theology would be good for these people. So the passage of Scripture that he reads is Romans 3.20, 22 through 26. And if you ever have a pastor that skips a single verse in the middle of what he's reading, you automatically turn up your discernment. Why did he skip the verse? Okay, here are the verses in question. Then I'll tell you what he skipped. Then I'll tell you what he said. Romans 3, 20, 22 through 26. Quote, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Fairly straightforward, I think. The verse he skips is 21, quote, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This is clear. The law, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic or Levitical law, the added laws of the Pharisees, none of that makes us righteous. The law points to the fact that we're law breakers. Jesus came. He was presented, given by God as a sacrifice for sin, so that by faith in Jesus, those who believe, no matter who they are, will be saved. Again, no works needed, no works able to save. A free gift accepted by faith. Paul also states that those that sinned before this singular way of salvation were in a period of forbearance. They weren't destroyed immediately or cast into hell upon death because the one to have faith in hadn't come to earth and given his life willingly for all yet. This is where we find in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, so many of those we know of in the Old Testament, before Jesus came as a man, they were saved by faith. Just the object of their faith had not yet come and had not yet fulfilled his mission. God, standing outside of time, can pull all these things together at the correct time. He's not bound by a timeline like you and me, and by the sacrifice, God, the Trinity, the single God, both enacts perfect justice and makes available perfect justification and redemption. Clearly, this is not for all people everywhere in all time, as some people, probably most people, do die in unrepentant sin and will be cast into hell. The all in this passage refers to people from all lands, from all people groups, from both genders, etc., etc. Now here's what Andy does with it. Quote, 
It's so powerful. Here's what he writes. Therefore, no one will be declared right before God or righteous in God's sight by doing good things. Rather, through the law, through the law that we people tell us is the law in terms of how you obey God or just your internal conscience, we all have a conscience. We know right from wrong, right? And he talks about that in Romans. Hmm. Let me interject. This is why he dumped out verse 21, because the law is not our internal conscience. It's not what man says is the law. It's not what people tell us in terms of how we obey God. This is talking about the law that God gave for a purpose, both immediately and ultimately. But Andy doesn't need that pesky Old Testament law. We don't need to worry about that. We need to be rid of the Old Testament, ultimately, so we can... Uh, and we must change the definition of law by eliminating verses that get in our way. Continuing on, quote, He said, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. You are conscious of your sin. You have mistreated other people, and you've mistreated yourself. Ugh, we're back to his definition of sin. You know, mistreating others and mistreating yourself. <laughs> That's not sin, Andy. Going on, quote, you are conscious of your sin, and being conscious of your sin is because you know the rules externally or internally, but knowing the rules and even keeping the rules doesn't make you right with God. It just reminds you that you're a rule breaker. You're hopeless. You're doomed. You can't work your way into a good relationship with God, right? Then he says this. There is no difference because he's writing to an expression of Christianity that's more Jewish than Gentile, he says. But come on before you get all high and mighty, all you Jewish folks. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Famous verse alert. For all have sinned and fall short of the goodness, the glory, the majesty of God. I'm better than you, and I'm not as good as him. And then God shows up and levels the playing field. Jew, Gentile, good people, not so good people. There's no difference. All of us fall short of the glory of God, and that's the bad news. Ah, oh, okay. There's no such thing as a good person, Andy. And if you're a real pastor, one that studies the Bible, you would never say that. Now, yes, there are people that are good from a human perspective, that do good things from a human perspective, but we know that absent salvation, not one person is good, and all of our works are as filthy rags. <sighs> but on we go. Quote, here's the good news. He says, and just as all fall short because all have sinned, all are justified. That is, made righteous, put back on a level playing field relationally with God, freely by His grace, not through doing good things or even being true to your own conscience. Through the redemption, the buyback program, God's going to buy back the sinners, God's going to redeem the sinners, God's going to pay whatever He has to pay to get the sinners out of the hole and get the sinners back into a relationship with Him. Through the redemption that came by King Jesus. Wait, wait, this can't be. Wait, you're telling me God sacrificed the final king? That God sacrificed his king? That the king willingly sacrificed himself so that I can be made right with God? This is why it's called good news. It gets better. And God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. See, the question isn't, can we explain it well? The question isn't, do we understand it all? The question is, are we going to use the technology that we don't understand how it works? Or are you going to sit around and wait till you understand it? He says that we receive by faith. The question is, have you done this? Have you done this? And then he keeps going. Now, okay, wait a minute. Wouldn't this be a great time to explain salvation by faith, Andy? But no, apparently it's not. <sighs> Quote, and then he keeps going. He says, and not only that, God put on a show. I mean, he put on a spectacle. He put on a show. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. 
No, no, no. This isn't like most evangelical churches. God didn't come soaring in on a zip line. Jesus didn't do some elaborate thing on stage. God showed us his righteousness. He showed us his justice, and he showed us his grace through the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, it's another one of my pet peeves when pastors can't get through a verse without walking down every rabbit trail, kicking every dog, and then jamming their own ideas into the verse. Just read it. Expand on it later. Exegete it in a moment, but just read it. Quote, He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his patience, his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Here's what this means. The human race did not get what it deserved when it deserved it. That before Christ came into the world, God overlooked and was patient with the sin of every human being who had ever been born and who had ever died until he could get to the moment that he sent his son to pay for their sin in the past our sin in the future. This next part, it's amazing. Listen to this. He did this. He did this to put on another show. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. This next part, we read right by this, is epic. He did this. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Pause. What Paul is saying here is this. My generation, talking about his generation, he's like, can you believe it? Are you kidding me? We are the generation. Me and Peter and John and Mary and all the other Marys and Martha and all the... We are the generation. We are the generation that God chose to show up to redeem the world. He did it in our lifetime. You Corinthians, come with me to Jerusalem. I'll introduce you to the people who are part of this story from beginning to end. No. (laughs) No. And this is the problem with deciding to go all scorched earth on a verse. This isn't a point of pause. There is nothing in the writing of this verse by Paul to suggest that Paul was making a big deal about the fact that it was done in his time. Paul was just setting this in the timeline of history. God chose to show his righteousness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at the present time. That's it. Quote, He did it at this present time so as to be just because he's just. He calls us to account. Hey, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You fall short. You fall short. You fall way more short than him, but you both just fall short. Everybody falls short. He's just, so he has to point out injustice. He has to point out injustice in us. He's both the just, and this is beautiful language, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. This is so beautiful. He says, I'm going to call you out because you're a sinner, and then I'm going to deal with it myself. I'm going to call you out because you have fallen short. We're not going to dodge that. We're not playing games. You fall short, and there's a penalty to be paid. I'm going to pay the penalty. I'm going to be just and the justifier. Allie, don't scratch Dad's car up anymore. I love you. I'll pay for it. Go see your mama. That's just and the justifier. Did this scripture need any of this? Did he add anything except for confusion? The scriptures, for the most part, are very clear. Did he have to throw so much stuff in there? And the answer is no. Because as you can see, he not only added nothing, he screwed up a bunch of a few verses, and to make his points, he had to eliminate one of the other verses. This is bad exegesis, which is reading out of the scripture, and clear eisegesis, which is reading into the scripture. And why? Well, he comes back to the question. Get ready for the big reveal, right? Quote, why did God require Jesus to die for your sin? Because of his justice, he demands payment. Because of his mercy, he delayed payment. Because of his grace, he made the payment himself. 
He then relates a story of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis talking about Christianity and how Tolkien was trying to convince Lewis that this is true, telling him that it explains everything. And Andy says, quote, it's why it's good news of great joy for all people. And anything that dumbs that down and anything that dilutes that and anything that creates unnecessary separation or unnecessary steps needs to be eradicated because it's good news of great joy for all people. Your Heavenly Father accommodated to your capacity. He is just and he's the justifier. It's perfect. And you've been invited. And go back to point number five, quote, Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you to God. Now, Andy makes it clear it's not important that you completely understand it or that you can explain it. The question is, have you received it, accepted it, submitted to it, surrendered to it? If not, there's no better time. So then the call to repeat a prayer that Andy wrote, and it's short and it's basic and it's pretty much what you'd expect. Now, as far as Stanley sermons go, (laughs) despite this fairly lengthy review, this wasn't terrible, but let's be honest. If you're professing to be a Christian or a Jesus follower and you're making a list of fundamental beliefs, you must have the point that Jesus died for your salvation somewhere in there, and it's fairly difficult to screw that one up. But Andy's overall messaging is clearly in there. His goal is to remove our connection to the Old Testament, except where we need to use it for purposes of disposing of it. The entire Bible is about Jesus. Jesus doesn't eliminate the entire Bible. Jesus didn't come to unhitch the Old Testament. He fulfilled the Old Testament. There are a variety of categories of laws in the Old Testament, some that still apply today, many that do, in fact. But Andy needs to make it clear that there are dangerous people and dangerous pastors out there that will put all those rules on you, and Jesus never mentioned them by name, so do you follow Jesus or not? This is why he redefines sin. This is why his Christianity is a very soft form of Christianity. And to make it easier, he says without saying it, the oft-used phrase, God or Jesus, meets you where you are. This, I believe, is what Andy is saying when he says that God accommodates to our capacity. He meets you where you are. But he doesn't say that we need to move from there. In fact, he doesn't really want you to move from there. I'm talking about Andy. If you start trying to work at growing... You won't hang around Andy or his ilk for long. Now, granted, you will be learning that toxic, dangerous, judgmental theology. So, you know, take your chances, I guess. But remember, rather than doing all that work, you could just listen to Andy and be accommodated to by God. Sounds much better, right? Simpler? And now in keeping with the situation, I'll accommodate to you and your need to not hear anything more from or about Andy and his fundamentalist and his twisting of scriptures. As I said last week, take a break. Maybe go get a spa treatment, a nice mani-pedi. Listen to your audio Bible as you do that, or a good podcast from a solid biblical teacher. But do not wash your ears out with bleach or smack yourself in the head with a solid object. You won't erase Andy that easily. This kind can only come out by prayer. (laughs) Oh no, did he just call Andy a demon? You can judge that one for yourself. In the next part, we'll soldier on like good, well, soldiers, I guess, and work through messages six and seven. We're getting there painfully and slowly, but we're getting there. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.